0: hey folks and welcome to another episode of the team builder podcast i am your host hewitt tomlin before i get started with our guest today i want to talk about the online payments portal this is our latest feature we are super excited about this basically coaches who build programs on team builder will be able to set them for sale uh, meaning you can train athletes and clients online by taking a program, giving it a price, and then sharing the link for anyone who wants to pay to train with you. Um, So again, that's the online payments portal. Go to our website to check it out. Today's guest is Ryan Gallup. Ryan is the performance director at NACOA. NACOA Fitness is in Southern California. They train a lot of action sport athletes and rugby players. A Little bit different, which is really cool and exciting. That's why I wanted to have Ryan on the show. Ryan strikes me as a unique coach. He puts a lot of emphasis on the mental side of performance coaching. He also has a lot of knowledge and puts a lot of emphasis on um, stress management. And he talks a little bit about the work that he's done with Laird Hamilton, um, if people know about him. Uh, Breathing, breathing work, uh, and how that relates to stress. Uh, even mid-game. So it kind of gets into the sport, uh, you know, sport coaching realm of things in terms of performance. Uh, We talk about how Ryan himself is still an avid athlete. He's able to coach uh, with a unique style because he still puts a lot of effort into being a competitive athlete in rugby. Uh, We talk a lot about that. And then just in general, we get off on some fun tangents about sports and rugby in general. Of course, I'm always interested in that side of things in addition to the performance side of things, so we cover that also. Hope you enjoy it. Hey, Ryan, how you doing, man?
1: To hear it. How are you,
0: bud? Hey, doing well. Looks like it's nice and sunny there. And uh, is this Southern California where you are?
1: Yeah, we're down in uh, North County, San Diego. We've uh, There was some... We had some fires early in the week that kind of became news because it was from, like, a gender reveal. <laughs> yeah. Nobody was too stoked on hearing that. But, um, yeah, it's getting a little better. The air quality didn't get too bad up here, but we are still, like, kind of in a heat wave. It's been, like, last weekend was some of the hottest I remember San Diego ever being. And even today, it's it's already in the 80s for sure.
0: Yeah. yeah, so yeah even
1: getting hard. some uh, East Coast humidity, it's reminding me of being back home Alex. Everyone out here is freaking out, and I'm like, oh, I'm used to sweating during the day for no reason.
0: I saw that about the the heat wave. It looked pretty hot, but I, I guess being in San Diego, training year-round, you can go outside any any month of the year, right?
1: Oh, for sure, yeah. We even at our facility have, like, we have turf out back, so if we want to do spillover training. Um, honestly, during um, this last six months with COVID and different lockdowns, we were able to stay open of physical therapy being an essential service yeah. but because of spacing and everyone trying to you know toe the line i was doing a lot of my stuff outside you know bringing we have one of those fold-out tents and then have an just bring you know the med balls or hurdles or dumbbells whatever we needed and then if we needed to go inside we could mask up but it actually was a, a lifesaver it made it easier to keep the facility spaced out
0: so if you're like an outdoor if you're a performance facility in southern california it's almost like obligatory that you should have an outdoor space there's no reason for not.
1: sure because like even in the winter like it so rarely rains out here and we only have like our old turf set up outside we don't have like the good stuff but it rarely rains so we're not really dealing with um you know having to roll it up and hide it to get moisture out and typically when it's gonna rain everyone knows about it because it's pretty rare so you yeah. can plan ahead of that but yeah i mean you definitely can. And rent is not cheap in San Diego for commercial or residential. So to optimize your amount of square footage, you know, being able to take advantage of outside is pretty key.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, NACOA, by the way, I wanted to start with, you have a great logo and it's a very unique, interesting name. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be?
1: For sure. So, um, we used to be a, uh, a group of us were part of a, an old company, a training company, uh-huh. and we kind of um, split ties and knew we wanted to rebrand. We wanted we didn't want anyone's name involved with it. You know, Cressy, they've written blogs about how they wish they had a different name because then you're tied to a person. Yeah. And we always kind of had a different we did general pop. We do a lot of athlete training. We have physical therapy. So we didn't want a name that pushed us too much into one world that would kind of scare everyone else away because we felt that before in the marketing in the past. And um, we've always had an action sports theme. We've worked with a lot of professional and youth surfers. Um, one of our owners, our owners actually, our founder Jason and his wife, Bianca. Bianca's from Kauai and they actually got married over there. So we've had kind of, there was always a little bit of a Hawaiian thing, you know, with the surfing and whatnot. But a lot of it comes from like Nakoa means like, having a brave warrior spirit and really being courageous and not being scared to kind of, you know, take on challenges. And that kind of fits for all of our people, whether they're injured in PT, general population people, just trying to be happy, healthy adults, or um, all obviously our athletes with the competitive side, it kind of fit. And then we knew we were like, all right, if we're going to have Nicole we need a badass tribal logo. So years ago, um, Bianca, she found... Um, a really cool polynesian guy i think he's either a tattoo artist or he does design for like polynesian based tattoos uh-huh. you know the funniest thing randomly last week i was playing rugby and some big samoan guy who i've played against in the past like pointed my logo and was like dude i know the guy who made that i was with him like five years ago when he was designing that It was a small world thing But it's, it, it's basically like a polynesian yin and yang it has like a male and female like um kind of circle of life thing, and it, it fits into kind of our culture of, you know, you know, uh, no exclusivity, everyone's welcome, everyone's invited, and, you know, we're all challenging to chase that warrior spirit and not be afraid to, you know, be your better selves.
0: Very cool. And so when the split took place and Ocoa was founded, how many years ago?
1: Uh, that was uh, about, f- we were in our new building for five years, so that was about six years ago, six and a half. Okay. And then um, we were in our old building for another year and a half after that. Then we found our new building and now we're actually moving again. I'm going to do that. I mean, we're in the process of doing it, but come this winter and it's it's never a fun thing. I've been a part of it twice already, but... We'll rally the troops and move a whole bunch of stuff. Luckily, it's only five minutes down the road, but uh, we'll definitely have a busy weekend or two for sure.
0: So background with NACOA was, as you mentioned, in action sports. And was there any reason for that? How, how did your business come to attract Action sports athletes say over the traditional sports that you would usually see at a facility
1: for sure. So, I actually it's funny, I actually found the original company because of that. I was training at a high end gym downtown, they brought me in as the performance guy, but the reality was there wasn't many athletes who went there. I was still playing rugby and I was into that training world and you know, working with random traditional athletes if I could find them. But I was, I grew up in a surf town and I'm admittedly a intermediate surfer at best, but I was always attracted to the, that honestly I followed it and I was like, man, I see there's a couple pros at that time. Like Mick Fanning made it really popular because he tore his hamstring like off his pelvis, trained and rehabbed his ass off for a year. And then he won like three world titles in a row. And I remember following that and seeing what he was doing, but then seeing a lot of the other quote unquote crap out there and sadly, if you look on YouTube back in the day, I uh, I participated in some of the cr- trying of surf-specific crap. But the reality was, I was like, this is a cool niche And in SoCal. There's a lot of professional skaters, snowboarders, and surfers who, who live here year-round. I mean, obviously, they travel a ton. But I started looking up surf training when I was work, uh, working downtown, and I found our old business. And that attracted me to them, that they had one or two surfers and they were actually targeting that environment. I was like, in San Diego, it's foolish not to. And so I, when I joined them, it was it was a slow going. I mean, myself and our other top athlete guy, we both came from the velocity sports background. So we knew the traditional speed and agility and lifting from like the track and the football world. But as we progressed and I wanted that, we chased and we made a couple really good, um, partnerships we knew an agency we knew a couple brands that sponsored these athletes and over the years we were looked at as a trusted place that actually knew because it's a totally different even beyond the demands being different than traditional sports it's the culture they're not you know i've been in both worlds the you know the super intense and focused team-based world and then the action sports world and whether they're pros or who's getting paid or what they're completely different So we learned that over the years. I think our culture and our building was kind of appealing to them. We were not a meathead place. We're not, no one's yelling or, you know, people train hard, but it wasn't like an aggro environment. And also having physical therapy, because the reality is a lot of action sports, especially skating, BMX, snowboard, they're spilling all the time. So it doesn't matter how good the training is, they get hurt. And for us to have really, really quality, uh, doctors of physical therapy in-house that we could if they were post-surgery or just needed a week or two of rehab because they slammed we could get them in with them and then transition back to training and we've always worked well as a team and I give a lot of our action sports athletes credit because they've made it for us like a necessity like we can't we can't presume they're gonna you know you have this off season with a traditional sport athlete you get six months you can do your linear periodizations and advanced programming and try and get them peaked, you know, go leaving you for the season action sports is year round, the travels nuts and they get hurt randomly. Like you you get a person fit as hell and telling you how amazing they feel on their board. And then the next morning they text you like, dude, I just slammed broke my ankle. I got to get surgery. Like I'll see in two weeks. And it's like, all right, that's just the nature of it. So we've gotten used to that. And I think our team does a really good job kind of, you know, treating them the way they need to be treated. It's different that their action sports athletes need to be extremely selfish because they are their team. They are their marketing. Their social media now is basically what brands are paying them for. So if they're not getting results or stacking clips, as they say, as far as good social media posts, then they're in trouble so it's our job to keep them healthy so they can do that year round as much as possible.
0: At what point did action sport athletes start taking uh, training seriously? Is that something that happened at some point in your career before you got started?
1: It's, it was happening a little bit before I got in and that's where kind of like I got excited about it. There was a, a guy in Carlsbad who was working with a guy, a really good pro surfer named Taylor Knox, who's from Carlsbad. So they were putting out some videos they were actually using Czech um, programming because that's what the coach Paul had went through. I'd seen some what's of that. Like
0: what's what Czech uh, programming?
1: Check is just like, um, what's the same for? He's been around forever. He's bigger on the West Coast and East Coast. But it's essentially Paul checks like, he was like a, a holistic wellness and anatomy guru like 20 years ago and really built up a lot of like, you know, it's almost like a blend of therapy and massage and training. And mm-hmm. Paul was doing a lot of that. Coming from the athlete side, I always felt like a lot of the surf specific or board sports specific stuff I was seeing was too balance driven and or flexibility driven, which is important. But I was like, I know every athlete could benefit from getting stronger and more powerful. And that's, you know, I've seen that in the traditional sports world. And I felt like we could bring that in action sports. And there, I mean, Australia has been ahead of us because they put money into their surf teams and skate teams from like the Olympic committee side. So they've had high performance institutes and put out a lot of, you know, research and proper training in the action sports world. Um, I felt like America, we we were slower on that, but we started catching up. I like to say we're one of the places in the U S that prioritize action sports and actually not forced, you know, square peg round hole, but we're like, listen, this, this advanced programming, you know, whether it's, French contrasts or plyos or Olympic lifts, like hey, some of this stuff can obviously work for you guys. If you're a teenage surfer who needs to get stronger, more powerful, we don't need to do all this stuff that looks like surfing in the gym. You already surf probably too much. Or you mm-hmm. definitely all the skaters definitely skate too much because they never have a reason not to. Yeah. There's indoor parks here in San Diego, it never rains. They literally skate all day, every day. So it's like you do your sport a lot, probably too much. What are the weaknesses you've built up from doing your sport too much, from maybe a corrective side or just um, overcompensation side? And then, what are your performance weaknesses? Like a lot of them need to put weight on and get stronger. And we're like, you need to lift weights. You're not going to do that with you know just a ton of Bosu ball and TRX circuits. That's not going to get you really stronger. And you know, we we kind of melded in the middle. We've designed and built out some systems whether it's med ball rotation work, because they do have a heavy rotary focus in all the sports, a lot of like jump and um, absorption training. So hop and stick, you know, variations and different kind of jump progressions. It definitely, it makes them feel sort of like they're doing their sport because they're twisting and they're landing and they're rotating and whatnot, but it's just a small piece of the puzzle. They're also still doing you know, meat and potatoes, strength and conditioning, uh, energy system work. You know, we're always focusing more on the higher end, like a lactic and gly- glycolytic stuff because they do so much aerobic by just doing their sport all day long that we just, we kind of focus in that world. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I just had a decline the call. I don't know if that showed up. Sorry. Um, but yeah, like we've, we've been doing it enough. And back to what I said in the beginning, the culture is such a big part of it like the fact that we can you know we're talking crap to each other in the fall we're talking fantasy football just as much as we're talking about getting ready for like the hawaiian winter or the you know mammoth winter whatever it is like we you with that culture you have to have fun in training there's not really in other sports you know you can mix in the fun but it also has to be serious because you got a head coach or a physio over your shoulder with them i mean they're paying to come to us we're private so if we don't make it at least somewhat entertaining and or a pleasurable experience they're just going to walk they're not it's it's not as built into their culture as a need it's more they want to yeah like i when we start in our old company when we moved to our new building i trained two of the most like famous skateboarders at the time ever and they were older dudes they didn't want it like broadcasted that they were training because it was not cool. And these guys are legends. They're, like, in video games and stuff that I've played. And they're, like, you know, they're kind of weird. They don't want stuff on Instagram or whatnot. Because in the skate world, up until pretty recently, like, you're a nerd if you're training. Like, skaters, yeah. it was, like, you skate you skate all day, you drink.
0: Skate is punk okay. rock. Yeah, skate is punk rock. Exactly. And going to the gym to train for your sport is kind of like being the front row kid, you know, doing – doing the good work, you know, To, I kind of get that, but that was, you're saying that was years ago. Is that still today?
1: It's getting, it's gotten better. You know, some of the, the, my longest tenure at action sports guys, I started when they were kids and it probably, you know, luckily they were sponsored by brands that actually took training seriously. So it was like part of their sponsorship. You know, you have a health budget for physio and massage and training, like take advantage of that. And luckily they were young enough and like, their parents were smart and knew that this could lower their risk of injury and increase their chance of success. Luckily, both of them, at least from under the Nicole wing and working with me, were they've had, a, they've had yeah, I say long careers, they're like 21 years old, but they've been very successful. And they started with us as like 13 year old, like goofy groms. But, the, you know, they were young enough where, yeah, they knew it wasn't that cool, but the brands were, the brands were stoked on it. And they were having competitive success so they could kind of stand up and be like, I don't give a crap. You know what I mean? Like that newer wave. And now with it being the Olympics, now it's kind of like you have to. Like if you're going to be an Olympic athlete and you're not at least training a couple of days a week and thinking about nutrition and mindset and, you know, sleep hygiene and whatnot, then, you know, it's going to catch up to you. There were, if this, if these Olympics, you know, now or next summer where this summer were four years ago, there would have been a bunch of surfers and skaters who made the Olympics that weren't doing much training or uh, fitness wise, I'd say. Now there's not going to be any that aren't. Cause then there's these other countries that are putting a lot more money in. They're like, there's some of the Asian countries that are putting young gymnast girls who were fizzling out of their gymnast thing. They're throwing them on skateboards. And they're teaching them how to skateboard. And they're like, you already know how to flip and spin and do all this stuff. We're going to put four years in need to see if you can be a better skateboarder because you weren't going to cut it as a gymnast. Like in America, we don't have that. Our best skaters are just our best skaters. There's no one crossing over to chase the Olympic dream. It just It's a different culture for us.
0: How big of a deal is the Olympics to professional skaters and surfers because, they have we have our X Games, we have our competitions here in yeah. the states. The Olympics has you know like historical prominence among certain sports, but newer sports do they care a lot?
1: It's it's a great question. So like for skating, I think it's more like obviously your brands are going to love it, and you're going to have the chance for more new new um, corporate America sponsorships. So the the athletes financial advisors and parents will be stoked on it. Maybe more than the kid is. I think representing your country will be a big deal. And then there'd be a handful of them that are like, I'm going there to win. Like I have gold medal aspirations. And honestly, even if they have that, they're not talking about it. I'm working with a couple skaters that have a very good chance of representing us there. And it's they just want to like going will be cool. And yeah, once you're there, it'll be like an event. And as long as there's not too much politics and drama, they'll have fun. And yeah, if they're having fun, they got a shot to win. But you rarely will hear like, I want this gold medal. Like I, you, like if a skater put that like on Instagram, they'd get made. Like you said, the punk rock thing. Yeah. They'd get, they'd get like teased about that.
0: Red, and then was, can talk about I want to win oh my as God. medals as ever. And it's it's, uh, you know, everyone's behind them. Every and every swimmer
1: in the world is like, I want to be the next Michael Phelps or, you know what I mean? Like that is true. And it's different the surf worlds, the surfing's funny because it, this spring next Olympics is in Japan. And in the time of year in the summer, the waves in Japan are usually like waist high. So even though again, these surfers are going to be really stoked and there's a little more aggro in surfing. Like you can pound your chest and be like, I want to win. That's my goal. But there's a chance the waves are tiny and it's a shitty contest, pardon my French. So they're like, OK, like I want to represent my country because that means I'm top two or top three woman. And, you know, USA and Brazil and Australia, it's them. And then like everybody else, there's a huge gap after those three countries. Um, but the, in next summer to be in France or uh, excuse me, it's in Japan. But in four years, the Olympics are in France. And they've already claimed they're going to do the contest at Chopu, which is the gnarliest left-hand barrel in the world. It's in Tahiti, which is a French colony. So when they said that, definitely a whole bunch of surfers were like, all right, making Japan would be cool. But having four years on the tour to try and get the spot to surf in the Olympics at Chopu in August, which is when it's big and scary and perfect, like that has so much of a different appeal than this next one. And it's literally just because of the wave. That's why surfing's so unique. Like I worked with skaters and snowboarders and whatnot, their BMX, their parks, their their mountains, their everything for long spells of the year, if not year round, are completely uniform and the same. So if you want to practice a trick for two months, you can. Uh, If you're a surfer, like mother nature dictates. I mean, they have the wave pools now, which are, they're, they're awesome for clips. I don't know if they're great for contests, but like surfers, they prefer the ocean over those things any day. They'll all tell you that. But like surf comps are so heavily dictated by the surf forecast and the weather. You could, you know, they can go to Hawaii for a two week waiting period and it's the random two weeks where Hawaii is small, like in December. And in other years, they think it's going to be a mellow SoCal you know, you know uh, a Huntington Beach comp and there's a huge south swell out of Mexico and it's freaking huge. Like mother nature dictates what kind of comp you're going to have. That's why it's such a, it's interesting and fascinating to follow, but from knowing a lot of those people and hearing it, it's also super frustrating because they know, you know, your heat could be in the morning when it's perfect just because of where you are in the bracket. And then the heats that afternoon are terrible. And yeah. those people got to surf in them, and they're just bitter. They're like, you know, if I was two hours early, I would have had barrels, and I just chased a bunch of slop, you know? Like, yeah, that would
0: suck. It's wild.
1: Yeah, it, and the Olympics has it, to worry about that.
0: In team sports, um, you play another team. I've always thought of it this way. If you're the Red Sox and you play it at Fenway and you have the Green Monster, well, the other team does too, you know? Or if you're exactly. Notre Dame and you like to play on long grass – um, to slow the other team down. Well, you're also playing on long grass, but it's not the same with these kind of. Well, at least with surfing that you're talking about, it, it's there's, there's it's, a lot of variety
1: to it. Not necessarily level playing field, and that's the thing. Is like the Olympics, they need to work with the WSL, that's like the pro surfing tour, uh-huh. to really know how to run these comps the right way. Yeah, because the way normal Olympics go, if they just pick a tight window for the, because the most Olympics I know, I had a girl. Who was in the Olympics last winter for um snowboarding and the girls snowboard the park girls the when the TV slot was was like the scariest wind of the whole two weeks they were there, and it was actually like dangerous, but that's when it was on the TV schedule, so they only could delay it a little bit and then they ran it, and it was actually a pretty subpar comp because of that. The surfing, like if whoever has it NBC, whatever. Is like, no, the surfing event is on eight to noon, USA, you know, West Coast time on these three days. But at those times, the waves suck. Like you, they need to be fluid. They need to have a period and they need to pick and choose when the waves are good or else it's a joke. If you've hyped up all these surfers traveling across the world and chasing their Olympic dreams, and then they're like chop hopping in like one foot waves, like Dewey beach waves, like we mentioned earlier. Like it's horrible TV, and they're not stoked. They're like, "This is a waste of our time."
0: Well, why don't they? Um, why don't they just um, say for the surfers they can just be anywhere in the world that has really good waves, like that place in Portugal with those massive waves that look like they're yeah Nazare. The entire. Well, I would see the the videos of the waves in Portugal. I thought. I thought it was like a tsunami that was going to wipe out an entire village on the, on the coast.
1: Those people are out of their minds. I've worked with some, a couple of big wave guys in the past, some guys from Hawaii. And it's like, it's funny to talk to them because they're just as scared as you'd imagine them being. But they're also like aware of like, it's so cheesy. It's like the point break movie, but they are aware of how amazing the rush will be if they actually make one, that it's like worth it. Like, it's not like those guys are fearless. Like, they can't sleep the night before the waves are like that. They're nervous as shit. They're out there knowing that death is actually a possibility. And, but they know, like, whether it's for their sponsors or to win a comp or just for their own gratification, that if they make one of those massive waves without dying, that it's like, it's like a feeling of a lifetime, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you know, do you know Laird Hamilton? Do you know him personally? I actually
1: did, um, the XPT that they run at their house in Malibu, their uh-huh. programming. Yeah. I was invited up by their performance director, uh, two summers ago to uh, participate in that.
0: Okay. And it's How was that? <laughs> oh,
1: you have? Okay.
0: No, no. Um, I, I've always wondered what it was like. What, oh, it's
1: a, honestly, it's incredible. Like I did the one day thing. It was actually like, a trainer influencer thing. So it was a bunch of like social media people. And then PJ, their performance director, he invited me up because he was like, I want at least one or two guys who's kind of in the athlete world to experience this. And there was a U S or an England rugby player there too. And he knew I played rugby. So he was like, Oh, you'd be stoked to meet Danny, but it's wild. Like you get there. I mean, their place, it's, it's immaculate. You're in the Hills in Malibu. You're looking over the ocean. The pools outside. They obviously have, have a giant ice machine because they're famous for their ice baths. Right. But like they give you a rundown. Lair does this crazy like br- breath journey with all, everyone on the on your back on a yoga mat. It it feels like it's only a 15 minute like crazy up and down roller coaster, and you find out after it's like 45 minutes, like you almost get like hypnotized. It's wild. And then so Lair does that, and then helps with the pool. But his wife Gabby Reese, she's she's amazing. She was like a mix of like, you know, your, your mom and like your most hardcore sport coach you ever had in one person. And yeah. she's like six, three and still super fit. So you're like intimidated. But then when you do something, cause a lot of it's like doing crazy stuff underwater in their pool, like all kinds of like farm, I was farmer carrying like dumbbells, like 12 feet underwater at the bottom of the pool. And I grew up in the ocean and surfing and whatnot, but I'm terrible at holding my breath and I'm not a great swimmer. So a lot of it, there, it's basically stress management and they call it CO2 tolerance. You're trying to build up your tolerance
0: Th- that to for CO2 that in the body. For that particular exercise or like the whole course as a whole, like what's the point of the whole course is, or is it just meant to be holistic?
1: It's it's, the main things they're using. So even after that, then you're doing extreme ice baths Uh and sauna mix. It's really all like stress management and character building. And most of it is fueled through breath work. Like Uh if you learn to breathe and you did, I was lucky that we did the breath thing and then the pool stuff first or my group did, because then we finished with the ice bath. So I had gotten to practice that breath work all day. If you, like, their ice baths, it's more ice than water. It's like 33 degrees. It's absurd. And your goal is three minutes. If you're not practicing the, like, the stress reduction, nasal breathing, slow exhales, all that, if you're not doing that, and you saw people panic, they jump out in 10 seconds. Like, they think it's impossible. But then I surprised myself. I was, I've been scared of real ice baths the whole life. I played rugby for a long time and managed to always dodge any form of an ice bath. Cause I just hate being cold. It's probably why I moved to San Diego, but that there, they teach you that, like they teach you, like you get under there and you're freaked out. Like, it's like, it's shocking. You feel like you're on fire cause you're so cold, but you start the breath stuff. I made three minutes both times. And then the third time, and some of the people destroyed me in this, the third time they're like, all right, if you made it three minutes twice, Let's just do a breath hold, go under and see how long you can do it. And it's, it's the same bath. It's like 33 to 34 degrees. So you go under there and you literally feel like a vice is on your head. Yeah. Right. It's
0: it's actually painful. It's not so that it's cold. It's just
1: beyond an ice cream headache. It literally feels like it's getting squeezed. And obviously I don't have any hair up here to keep anything warm. So when I went under there, I mean, I think I made it like eight (laughs) seconds. It felt like two minutes. Cause it's your, I mean, you want to talk about stress and panic, but like, that's the point they have, you do a bunch of breathing first and then they're like, go. And you just did, I, I saw somebody did like 35 seconds, which in that cold, it was like, it was mind numbing pun intended, but their stuff is definitely, it's awesome. Like I, i i i preached it. I've told friends who are interested back home, like if you guys ever want to do, you know, your. You get away from family, like man camp, and really like, but like, want to achieve something and be better because their two or three day thing is just that expanded out. But they're um they're awesome people. Like I grew up a giant surf fan. Like I've you know watching you know riding giants and it was about Laird's you know Chopu wave that where the Olympics are going to be. Like I've seen that guy forever and to meet him, he's super humble. He's quiet. Gabby more runs most of it. But they're both just, they're amazing people. Like, I left that day, I just sit in, like, the worst Malibu and Santa Monica traffic. It took me, like, four and a half hours to get home. And I was just completely buzzing the whole time. Like, I should have been exhausted and pissed about the traffic. And I was just, you have so much endorphin release after all that, like, overcoming stress. And you feel stronger when you leave. It's wild. It's definitely, I highly recommend it.
0: So let me ask you, did, did you come away with things that you saw what could transfer to sport? Did you bring anything back with you to your training with your athletes sure. that you thought would transfer to sport, to competition?
1: For sure, yeah. I think I, we already, I mean, for years, breath work has been a growing, uh, um, I don't want to say trend, but shit, for years, we, we never talked about it, right? right. All right. you ever heard was people say, don't put your hands on your knees, and even the last couple of years that's been disproven for some people i've always had asthma so honestly there were times where i knew that made me feel better so i just did it didn't right. listen to my coach but as far as the nasal breathing the down regulation of your nervous system you know we did an rpr cert like a year and a half ago at our place and learning really belly breathing and just being able to either whether it's down regulating your nervous system or the uh, you know the way i use it with most of my athletes would be like when we're doing you know, you know, anaerobic sprint work. So we're doing, you know, an alactic, you know, 20 second sprints or maybe a little longer, 30 to 60, but then, Hey, we got this, we have this gap between, you can either just, sit, you know, fall on the ground and huff and puff and not really lower your heart rate and to prepare for the next bout. Or you can, whether it's laying on your back and grabbing the ribs or even just sitting tall Learning how to expand your diaphragm, take air in through your nose. I mean, people get a feel for it. You will come back quicker. You you can some of with some of our guys wear my zones and we got the TV on the wall. Mm-hmm. You can see your heart rate drop quicker than like if you stayed in that hyperventilation state where you're just huffing and puffing and you're actually you're you're letting the stress and you know that metabolic shock continue instead of down regulating in. You know, whether I'm working with surfers or rugby players, especially because rugby is such a sprint recovery, sprint recovery sport. Right, kind of I'm like, cool. if, you can learn, if you can learn how to turn down that heart rate and that stress level eat quickly, like mid game, like I'm old and I played um, rugby sevens the last few summers, not this one. And without a doubt, if I didn't take more focus into like my recoveries, whether it's between sprints or tackles or whatnot. Like, there's no way I'd be playing with all these younger dudes. Like, it's impossible. Like, that the recovering between activity, I think, is the biggest thing uh-huh. that all proper breath work and definitely what they do at XPT. Cause Laird developed a lot of it for big wave surfing. He's like, talk about managing stress and occasionally getting the living crap kicked out of you underwater by a 30 foot wave. You better be able to manage your stress and then CO2 tolerance. Basically, what they teach you is our bodies have. Like 10 minutes of air in our red blood cell, or excuse me, oxygen in our red blood cells, it's really us wanting to get rid of CO2 that tells our brain we need to breathe. So it's actually to exhale more than it is to inhale. So they teach you how to tell that little CO2 voice to chill out. That's why we do like the crazy dumbbell stuff underwater, because it's, you're gonna get to that point of, oh crap, I need a breath. But the reality is, you just need to get rid of a little CO2. And if you can do that or just say, I'm good, I can hold it longer, you're you're learning to be calmer under like tense situations.
0: Wow. Yeah, it's wild. It is. I the ice stuff. Do you bring the ice stuff back with you to, to your Obviously, is that
1: like The reality is, you know, Larry and Gabby are lucky to have a major part obvious sponsorship with Yeti coolers. So uh-huh. they have the sick ice machine their employees and interns are literally walking ice buckets and coolers all day long because it's to keep the ice where they want it it's it's a lot of work to be honest oh, really? and we've thought of having them but the reality in our place from a sanitation point like if you're a college football team, you can fill up a couple garbage bags with or garbage cans with a hose and hit 711 and get a couple ice bags. The reality is that ice is not really cold enough to do the stress stuff it's uh-huh. probably just decent for moderate recovery you yeah. know from muscle soreness <laughs> or whatnot but to do what they're doing you need a ton of ice and even with them like they have an outdoor shower so you have to you know you have to rinse off before you go in it when you come out like they're taking the necessary <laughs> sanitation and honestly with today's world and the way we're looking at things moving forward it's tough. It- it's really tough to, to make or, to figure out a rational way to do that ongoing, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So the main takeaway, the, the main transferability is through the the breathing, breathing stress oh, management. And that's yeah. the theme of that course. That's interesting. That,
1: for sure. Yeah. PJ Nestler is their performance director. Uh-huh. And I met him years ago and he was getting into breath work because he worked with a lot of jujitsu. That's like his main sport background. And I think, uh, Laird and Gabby and him met up because they had a lot of like-minded thoughts, and he really is organized their programming. Because Laird will say it, Laird will be like, "I tested and made a lot of this crap up over 20 years of trying to survive 80 foot waves of jaws." So PJ's he, days really helped them organize it and make it into a course. And yeah. they're you know they're big in the they're big in the corporate CEO world as far as the stress and character building. They're big in like the CrossFit world obviously there's some action sports people who've been up there but um yeah it's it definitely has like a human building or a human element to like you leave there with a little stronger like feeling about yourself because you definitely are forced to overcome some fears and then they're not banging in your head like bullshit mental toughness stuff that a lot of people are trying to do now they're not really speaking to that right but you do you leave there like oh I am a little bit, I'm more capable of what I thought. Yeah. And obviously everybody loves feeling that. And it, it definitely, it's pretty
0: profound. Um, G- Gabby and, and Laird, are they are they more, uh, are they focused on like growing their their brand and kind of like their methodology more so than like training? Laird doesn't train like any professional athlete. No,
1: the, he has a couple people who just kind of hang at the house. Uh-huh. And do the, he basically has people who train with him. Yeah. So like when I was up there, Joe Kim Noah was up there from the bowl. He was on the Bulls then uh-huh. he like lives in Malibu and he, he's become good friends with them. So he's there a lot. Uh, Danny Cipriani was the rugby player. He's a big time yeah. player in England. Yeah. And, um, but no, like no one, like he literally has like actors and athletes and whatnot that are his friends that do it with him, but their education side. So they do do a cert and then more, they do these like, they have a house in Kauai so I think they do a big retreat there in the winter. Yeah. They do their house in Malibu a couple times a year and then they do I think they do some smaller satellite. So they do both it's either an education cert or it's like an actual retreat which is like any person can pay to go.
0: Yeah. That's cool. That yeah. uh, I should consider
1: doing. It. I'm sure a lot of people want to do it. It's it's game changing and whether you're, you know, action sports world that's where they pulled a lot of it from but it, it applies to all sports and even all any profession to be honest
0: yeah cool um let's get into rugby a little bit at, at what sure. point did you start uh training rugby is that before or after you're doing surfers and and uh, board sports
1: it was actually before because i've um i started playing rugby in high school okay. and i played all through college i'm part of why i moved to san diego my brother had moved out here a year before I knew rugby, there was more teams, there was higher level out here and I knew the fitness world was huge too. So those two things and not being cold anymore because I'm not a cold weather guy I grew up in it, but that brought me out here. I was actually just doing like regular personal training because I got a general health and exercise science degree in college. I got into it late because it wasn't the plan. I went to school for like engineering and learned quickly that that was a, a mistake So I got in health and exercise late, but just got a general fitness degree. Um, Got some certs when I was like 25, though, I I was doing personal training, but I was playing at the the biggest club in San Diego and wanting to get myself better at rugby. And, you know, then I started studying. I got my CSCS, started chasing more of that performance type job. Um, But, yeah, a lot of it came from wanting to make myself better. And then through that, I was like. Well, there's not. There was no pro rugby, so if I want to work with any high level, it's the USA. And then, luckily, the club I was playing for, we had a couple of USA guys who were going to play with us for that season. Nice. I reached out to the USA. It's typical, you know, like I tell all the young coaches, you better be willing to work for free a lot if you want to get any good experience when you're young. So I I reached out to USA strength coach and was like, "Hey, I'm a performance coach in San Diego. I play for Almac." I'm still friendly with these guys now, Todd, especially Todd Clever and Chris Wiles. They're on our team. I'm playing in the division below them, but practicing with them. I can help with their training. And he was like, beautiful. Because, you know, strength coaches are, they're sending out workouts back then, but Excel printouts. You have no, they're you doing have no idea. Right. Exactly. So I was volunteering with them, doing some weight room stuff, doing some speed stuff before our training sessions and kind of. Built in, you know, I volunteered a bunch with the USA. I would Todd became a good friend, and then Matt Hawkins, who was so basically, at one point, Todd was the captain of the 15s team, and my other buddy Matt, who was in San Diego as well, was captain of the sevens team. And I was working with them, and that ended up helping me get a job with USA Sevens. It was a part-time gig, but I got a great year and a half out of it. I admittedly was not ready for it at the time. I I knew how to train athletes, but as far as the team culture, working with a physio, realizing that the coach might change the practice schedule on a fly. A lot of that was stressful for me, but I learned a ton. And then after that, like rugby was just always a passion for me. So as long as I was planning it, I was helping people. I always have worked on and off with local high schools and club players. But, um, you know, to be honest, a big part of the action sports and work in traditional sports, a lot of rugby players, it's kind of like MMA there's not a lot of people in our country who actually make a lot of money doing it. So that means there's not a lot of people who can afford proper training. Mm -hmm. So I, I would be, I'd say more than half of my rugby training over the years has been either pro bono or just inviting the players I knew to come train with me. And that was my way of giving them free training was like, Hey, I'm getting ready for the season. So just show up in NACOA on these times and we'll just train together. Yeah, Um, I I helped out the Legion last year a little bit, uh, the San Diego pro team, and I'm looking forward to doing that. The rugby thing for me is just, it always has proved to me so much of this industry is relationships. Like the reason I worked with USA at one point was because of two friends that I hooked up with training and, you know, we became close. And then the reason I got in with Legion was a couple athletes and now he's one of the head coaches that used to play for the usa sevens when i was there and we kept in contact over the years he trained with me a bunch when he was away from the usa camp like all everything i've ever had in rugby is through relationships and it is sad to say but rugby is one of those like it probably is a bit like college football like you need to have the street cred like if you didn't play it good or you can't play it if like cause we go play touch rugby for fitness or whatnot. Like I can still play and that earns street cred for sure. With my servers, it's a joke. I'm like, I can get you a be a better athlete. You guys can freaking like I'll go surfing with you and I might get one decent turn while you're doing like 360 airs over my head and stuff. But there's like they know that there's a different separation. Like I tell them I'm not going to teach you about surfing. I don't know anything about it. Skating even less. Snowboarding Less. I can help you be a better athlete for that sport. Yeah. So rugby though, I have the experience. Like I've played it a long time. I know the game pretty well. But that that helps me. Like I'm not just some dude who's gonna yell at him and try and make them fitter or stronger. Like I yeah. can speak to the sport and that experience goes a long way, especially when you work with younger guys. Because yeah. they've they've had that old coach. Who, in their mind, was like, "This dude doesn't play," or he played in the seventies. He doesn't know. He doesn't know what I'm experiencing. So I, I'm lucky to have that experience that helps. How old are you? I'm 40 now. Cross the out there on the pitch. Yeah, last summer. Uh, last summer, I was playing. I was playing on back seven. So we're like trying to qualify for nationals. I was 39, and I'd say 85 percent of the rest of the team was 25 or younger really so that's where like like i said the training preparation and knowing how to recover is extremely important when you're an old geezer trying to run around with i mean half the team was only a couple years out of college some of them have played all americans like i mean these are legit players luckily i'm old enough and crafty enough and i've held on to a little bit of my fast twitch that i can hang with them but the physicality and the fitness is the hard part like there were, I, I was joking with some guys a couple weeks ago because I played touch with one of the guys and I saw him again, but I had to make, I made two tackles in our last tournament last year that like stayed with me for like three months. Like, cause I have old injuries, like my shoulders and neck didn't feel right for a while, but that's just the reality. And like, it, it helps me though, from learning, I have to train so much more fitness going into it than the other guys do. But that, you know, and I have to, from a huge standpoint, learn training smarter, not harder. And also seeing like, I've known this, but to live it, like you cannot train veterans or older athletes the same as you train the young guys. It just, and I heard that from an NFL guy years ago. And it's true in every sport. Like once you have a certain amount of years under your belt or a certain amount of injuries or just age, you can't do the same stuff. Like what I was doing in the weight room would have been, warm-ups for half of these young meat heads. But then some of my speeds, you know, my speed repeatability sessions, they could barely keep up. But that's because I'd been doing it for three months and they showed up to day one of practice mm-hmm. yoked because all they want to do is lift, but they haven't ran since their 15 season ended. So mm-hmm. it's you know, I've definitely I pull a lot of my training knowledge and whatnot from experience and honestly a lot of trial and error. Like most older performance coaches i made a million mistakes with athletes and also myself and i may always make trying to make sure i um change things moving forward based on those mistakes
0: um i'm sure you could say it's true for every sport but have you witnessed rugby over the years become more sophisticated and more competitive in terms of the fitness uh the abilities of the and the talent of people playing rugby today
1: absolutely um I'd always say, you know, the New Zealand All Blacks has always been kind of the gold standard for international rugby. And, you know, they've always played a a high tempo, fit 15 style of play. And if other teams, you know, until recently, because now other teams are trying out different methods. But for a while, they were just outpacing everyone. They'd literally like almost lull teams to sleep in the first half and make teams think that they're in the match. And they're really just like gauging weaknesses and tiring that team out and then in the last 30 minutes of a match they score like five tries and end up blowing the team out so that's kind of trickled down and in reality like i mean if you go to any of the journals and whatnot some of the best science out there and energy system work, sprint repeatability whatnot it's coming out of new zealand and australia and england and it's all from rugby organizations there's a lot of whether it's tech or smart people. Now, granted, sometimes you have a head coach who still wants to just smash dudes into the ground and hope they recover. But from a strength and conditioning side, you know, there's a lot of really smart people working in rugby. And look, Oh, no, like uh, the strength and conditioning side of rugby. Yeah. There's a lot of really smart people out there. A lot of some of the best studies you'll read even now come out of there. And there's a lot of young strength coaches. A buddy of mine Keir, one of flat, he's put he's been putting out great content for years. And it's more of who's willing to change. Because if you look at the demands of it's just like football, they're trying to make a change in football now, too. But like yeah. look at the demands of their sport and then reverse engineer it. And a lot of the fitness that was probably preached, I know a lot that we used to have to do in the club days, it was way too much aerobic-based stuff. Like that's fine in the offseason, but as we get closer to the season. It's a sprint repeatability sport. So if you're doing most of your fitness at 75% intensity and 60% speed, but then in the game you need players to sprint and tackle and rock constantly, they're not going to recover well enough because they're not as used to that. So, you know, rugby has been big in pushing this in other sports too and that there's no better fitness than playing the game. There's, mm-hmm. You can't get tighter to the bioenergetics of a sport than playing the sport itself.
0: Is that just due to the, like the arousal, the, like the, the CNS arousal? Is that really all it is?
1: I think a lot of it is. And it's also just like, I think what people forgot for years in rugby, most, some of the most taxing efforts is the tackling and the rucking. So in the last, you know, bunch of years, grappling, you know, wrestle training mixed with sprinting, like that's the fitness that rugby really feels like. You can be a team who runs their ass off all the time. But once that player who might be super fit on the track days or those, you know the shuttle days makes 3 tackles in 2 minutes he's on the ground and he's like i've never been this tired in my life like i've been there before and I've been there before I've,
0: been, I've, there before. I've been there in yeah. really football where the the first scrimmage of the season i no matter how hard i worked in the off season it never <laughs> it always felt like i did nothing in the off season as soon exactly. as I playing the game
1: yeah, so there's – and even just, like, from rugby, you know, the, the awareness of, like, the structure of the season and the structure of the off and preseason, you know, that yearly cycle. Like, what does that look like for people? And I think a lot of the smarter training that was always at the international level and then was in the pro levels in, you know, Europe and in the southern hemisphere – is coming down to the club levels in those countries. And now that we have major league rugby in America, we're getting more college players and club players with aspirations to play in the MLR, play for the USA team. And if they're lucky, they either have a local strength initiative coach who actually knows what he's doing, or they've been to one of these, you know, scouting combines or USA selection camps, and they get some experience under a real, you know, professional environment. And they're like, wow i guess i should stop you know no offense but like doing crossfit and running 5ks because yeah. we just were not in camp for a week and we did nothing that even felt remotely like that training yeah and i thought i was fit as shit and it turns out i'm not rugby fit at all yeah. so i think there's been a lot of that that mindset has shifted like i feel like it used to be like and i used to do it just You had your lifting days and your running days, and then you practice. Mm -hmm. And the more you practice and play, obviously, the more you back down the other stuff in season. But now, like doing, you know, microdosing a speed session before practice, you know, doing a repeat sprint session right in the middle of training so that not only you're showing you can do it, you can interrupt your brain from the strategy session and just work your ass off, but then go back to either strategy or scrimmaging now that you're a little gassed and can you keep your bearings about you while fatigued? Because rugby right. is a game barely played fresh. Mm-hmm. I, you know, sevens, which is why I played last couple summers, in rugby sevens, you're tired like 30 seconds into a match. Yeah, Unless you're playing sweeper and the other team has it for a while and you're just moving. If you're in the defensive line or your team has the ball, within 30 seconds you have some form of fatigue in your body. It and it like doesn't until the game's over? Pretty much. And if you're and the games, literally, I tell people games are 14 minutes and they're mind blown. And I'm like, trust me, even with the two minute halftime, it's the longest 16 minutes of your life. If you play a whole match, you're you're, you want to crawl away and die. And, but it's, you cover so much ground and it's such high intensities and all, every contact situation is critical because if you miss a tackle, they're probably going to score. And if there's a rock situation and they can blow you over and steal the ball, they're probably going to counterattack and score. So there's such a heightened sense of stress in sevens and fitness, and it's tournament style. So you're playing multiple of those matches all day long. So if you're not fit enough to just – even in just getting warmed up, cooled down, warmed up, cool down four times in a day, which is what club rugby sevens feels like, mm-hmm. like you have to have such a good base. But you also have to be like mentally disciplined and accountable. Like you have to – hydration, your food, your – your tissue work and your mobility between games, like you can't just turn it on and turn it off and, you know, hang out and chat for an hour and a half between matches. Like you'll you'll be useless.
0: Yeah. It kind of reminds me of these like seven on seven camps that we used to do like in the football, football right? Uh-huh. We had maybe five matches that day, but you know, the teams that were doing well were the ones who took the last match as seriously as the very first match. hundred percent and warmed
1: part. up the same way. Yeah. Like, what, my, I was, it was like a joke with my club, like not only cause I do this for a living, but I always ran pre game and pre practice warmups, but it was mainly cause I was the old guy that if I didn't do that properly, I'm going to blow something out or be completely useless. Yeah. So like, I would just get up and be like, let's go. And the young guys who might normally do like two toe touches and be like, no, I'm ready. They'd be like, all right, crap yeah, we got to warm up. Let's go. But it also helps you switch on mentally. Like you can be goofing off for an hour. And then all of a sudden it's like, I have two balls. We're meeting in that corner, get two balls. We're meeting in that corner in two minutes. Everyone boot up. Like there is that, Oh crap, you know, time to, time to uh, check back in.
0: Right. Right. Who who, who are the strength coaches for most of the MLR teams here in the U S
1: there's some uh, – we just got one out here, Legion, his name's uh, Ian Gibbons. Really He's
0: smart. Time What's that? Employed by the club?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, it's Legion's the pro team, and uh-huh. they just brought him in. He's really sharp. He's been all over England. He's worked with the USA women's team. He was in the Seattle pro team um, two years ago when they won the championship. Um, a couple of the clubs will hire the foreign guys, as we call them, jokingly uh-huh. as because they the reality is they have a lot more experience in the team high performance world of rugby because right. it's been professional in all these other countries for way longer right um american guys there's some smart american guys young guys i know that are trying to crack into it um it's challenging though because in the rugby world even in america a lot of those teams are owned by foreign guys or the coach is foreign so they know They want to play an English style of rugby. Well, then they want an English assistant coach and an English strength coach. Or, you know, they want to play an up-tempo Kiwi style. Well, then they want some Kiwis on the staff. Like, not necessarily, but there tends to be a natural leaning towards. Ian's just been all over the place. And I've met with him because I still want to help the Legion out. And he's a super sharp guy that I think I can definitely learn a ton from and hopefully keep helping the boys out because it's a great crew. Like, I got tight with a lot of guys last year. But that is the problem in a lot of – in a lot of the cl- – like most – I mean, most of USA Rugby is clubs. There's yeah. like, you know, 12 pro teams. So there's only 12 cities that are pro. And the the pro – or USA Sevens is based in San Diego. The 15 squad only gets together a couple times a year in either Colorado or San Diego. But most cities and towns have a ton of rugby, and there isn't – there's not necessarily – proven strength coaches or rugby specific guys. So when it inevitably happens is the, it's just like high school sports, like the assistant coach who yeah. loves lifting weights somehow is the football strength coach. And you're like, okay. Or the, the player who's the most diligent and trains the hardest is like almost the volunteer strength coach. Uh-huh. It doesn't necessarily mean they have the experience in rugby strength and conditioning, Right. they just are either willing to volunteer or they're like i'm going to this gym 3 nights a week everyone else show up that kind of thing like that's yeah. so you know i I've, I've helped out a group called rugby nation to put out some baseline you know off season in season pre season programming for people to follow that guy kier i mentioned earlier he has a great website that puts out a lot of high level rugby templates for athletes to follow and it is kind of a niche industry because it's just like MMA training I look at like there's probably a lot of coaches that are passionate about it but there's not a lot of money in it so that means those coaches are probably working with other people and maybe doing their MMA thing for like fun or it's like a passion project you know rugby we're we're not even we're not like we're Europe or south southern hemisphere as far as South Africa, Argentina, Australia, New Zealand. We're we're so far behind them as far as prioritizing rugby. Mm -hmm. And it's not really the sport's fault. Like, look, soccer is barely prioritized here. We have the NBA, we have the NFL, and we have the major MLB. Like, those three sports pretty much run the world. So all the other sports take a far, far distant second from both the amount of people that play them, but also the money involved. And sadly, you know, strength coaches got to make money and i've seen i've seen some of the salaries being offered whether it's a collegiate rugby strength coach or a pro team's assistant and it's it's not enough to make a living let's put it that way like a lot of college strength finishing jobs right like you got people who are so passionate about it that they're willing to do it for little but the reality is it's they're scraping by if that's what they're mainly focused on
0: yeah interesting the prospects for rugby are they looking better i mean i've had guests on the podcast talking about lacrosse i don't think lacrosse is as big as rugby is in the states at this point and you know they can tell lacrosse will benefit from you know people i guess for lack of a better word defecting from football it's true rugby same way absolutely rugby rugby's safer than football than american football
1: yeah i mean it's just you learn how to tackle properly
0: right yeah. You don't,
1: I've always joked to my football players. I'm like, they're like, how do you play rugby? How do you tackle people? I'm like, you wrap them up by their knees, you squeeze them together, and you dump them. And you do it with your head behind them. Because guess what? When you're not wearing a helmet, you give a crap how you hit somebody. And yeah. in football, I I was a 130 pound senior year playing football DBN receiver. I know all about trying to use my pads and helmet as a weapon because i was smaller than everyone on the field but nice. in rugby that's not an option a you have to wrap both from the rules standpoint but you you're protecting this scrum caps people see scrum caps scrum caps are to protect ears from cauliflower, ears. cauliflower they ear. they do they do nothing
0: i would because, probably wear one of those because nothing against cauliflower ear i'm just uninterested in
1: yeah you know. and it's uh but that's the point is like Rugby, you learn, I mean, uh, Pete Carroll did it years ago. He brought in Sarevi, uh, which was a rugby organization in Seattle. He uh-huh. brought them in to teach tackle technique. And the first thing they did with all their defensive backs is they made them do tackle drills without their helmet. Uh-huh. And those guys were scared. And they were like, what are you scared about? The, the helmet's the weapon. I know you don't have yours on, but now he doesn't either. Yeah. But then we call it cheek to cheek. Like in football, this is the horrible thing. I hope they changed it now, but when we were in high school, they taught us to put our head in front of the guy. So yeah. if the arm wrapped in work, your head would slow him down. Yeah. In rugby, it's the opposite. You put you, the guys, run, if a guy's running at you, obviously you got to go square up on him. But typically it's at an angle. Uh-huh. You're diving to wrap wrap the legs and put your cheek on his butt cheek because that's, your head's protected because you're you're now behind him. Now, yeah. granted, you have to have a good rap or he's gonna run right through it. But right. you're you it's natural it's like survival instinct. If I like, I mean, I've tackled some big, scary Samoan dudes in my life. If I put my face in front, their giant quad is coming through my chin and I'm lights out, guaranteed. Yeah. So you don't you don't tackle like that because you you you've hurt yourself. And that's in football, you have that false sense of comfort because of the helmet that's the biggest problem mike Ditka, i heard him say it on espn a couple years ago and everyone laughed at him he goes you want to fix football get rid of helmets he was like when i started playing we wore those little leather things you think guys were tackling with their heads he's like no we're not stupid yeah. but you give these guys these lightweight super like they're well constructed They really are they get
0: better and better every year exactly the and they say
1: for protection yeah guys just learn how to use them better
0: exactly i the helmets that they made my senior year of college were totally different than the ones i wore freshman year of high school exactly lighter more comfortable cushier they felt like you weren't wearing anything and they were probably stronger as well and it
1: makes you think like
0: yeah. okay like like I
1: told, like I was saying, I used to play DB. I'd fly up and aim shoulder and head at a dude's knees because I wasn't wrapping anybody up. It just wasn't gonna happen on a tailback who's like twice my size. yeah but in rugby that's just it's legal and it's just not considered because you'd be you'd hurt yourself. I've seen guys on a rugby field knock themselves out and it's always from that move. They put their head on the wrong side of the tackle uh-huh. and whether it's an elbow, or uh, usually it's a knee and the dude doesn't even do it on purpose
0: you put your head out in front without a helmet on you're just gonna kneecap to the face lights out and you see guys you know
1: i saw a teammate way long ago he was literally snoring before he even hit the ground because he tried to square up on like a 300 pound prop and i mean I, it's it scared all of us we were like they had to get the ambulance and stuff but it was one of those like moments where you're like we know Andy; he screwed up he shouldn't have put his head there but damn like It's scary to think that that's possible.
0: Yeah, it is scary, (laughs) but safer.
1: That's the crazy part. I've seen, I always told people I got, I mean, I got worse. My rugby injuries were were from the ground, getting Uh hit and hitting the wrong way. But as far as contact, like in high school, I remember I caught a dig, a dig route. A dude hit me so hard in my ribs. My bruise was mesh. From the jerseys.
0: Yeah. Like,
1: a... and that was like, I was 17 and fragile and I was okay, just hurt like hell. Yeah. But I'm like, I never got a contusion like that. I mean, well, I shouldn't say never, but never something so like belligerent. And the reality is in football, not only the helmets, but there's way more um, blindside hits in football. Yeah. Whether it's track backs or tackles. In rugby, you rarely get tackled. If you get tackled and you don't see the guy, he's probably chasing you down. And right. those tackles usually don't hurt, but you're rarely like running and some dude flies from nowhere and hits you just because game flow doesn't really allow for that. Like yeah. if you're in rugby, you're in front of your whole team. They're behind you. Cause if they're not, you couldn't pass it to them. And the other team is in front of you mostly coming at you. So you, you rarely get blindsided. And I think in a lot of football, it's the circumstance yeah. of the hit, not just the helmet that makes it so brutal. Like, that's i think you know going over the middle and whatnot i still i'm a receiver at heart and i give those so much credit i mean they're trying to make it safer but even if it's a clean hit some of those hits are just they're so vicious it's gnarly
0: yeah they're tough they're tough it's been tougher to watch as the athletes get bigger faster stronger totally um they become more dangerous i mean um it's definitely true and there there are some sundays (laughs) where i watch you know nfl and i i love the nfl i love it Um, But certain times I'm just like, man, this is so brutal. I, you know, have a hard time watching. Um, Mm -hmm. I know they get paid a lot. It doesn't matter. It's still still brutal. And, uh, you know, you want to think about ways of, you know, contributing to not letting it happen so often. Um, But I always love learning about rugby. Um, you know, we're gonna wrap up here pretty soon, but it's mm-hmm. it's been fascinating to me. I've, I have grown up playing football, I always thought rugby looked, you know, for one, really hard, and I'd rather wear pads than not. But exactly. as you grow older, you start thinking about it. You're like, it seems like a lot of fun. It seems like something that would teach you how to be safer. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'm only thirty. Maybe it's something I should look into doing.
1: Dude, here. you I'm should sure. give it a crack. I've every men's club I've ever been on. There's always a couple new guys every season. And the reality is most teams, first couple weeks of practice, you're going to play touch rugby, which is basically wow. fitness. So you will learn the flow of the game. And there's good clubs in D.C. You could absolutely find clubs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, right now, some people are being weird with spacing. It depends on the club. But right. playing touch rugby is great for everyone to start because not only you'll – you'll immediately feel the different fitness levels needed. You're going to gas out all the time and be like, holy crap. We're not even hitting yet, and I'm dying. But you learn the game. Like, my kids are going to play flag rugby this year. You learn the game without the fear of being hit. And the same thing's happening in youth football. So many parents are sticking with a flag longer because they're like, it's not just about, like, you need to learn to wear pads. Like, if you can actually get good at playing the sport before you're scared of the kid who hit puberty before you laying you out because he's twice your size. Yeah. if you go right into full contact in any sport, the the fear component will make it harder to learn, in my opinion. Yeah. And touch rugby, not only is it fun, but you'll, you'll learn the flow of the game. And as a football guy, like in college, every year, every semester, we had new football guys who wanted to transfer in. And the first thing they go to do in practice is block somebody. And we're like, you're not allowed to be in front of the guy with the ball. There's your first rule. So stop blocking because it's completely illegal but that's a hard thing for football guys to undo like i was lucky i played club junior and senior high school in the spring so i was learning those fundamentals even while playing football you know football is the fall track and track was winter and spring and rugby but high school rugby it's semi-organized but you're learning the game and then you understand like had the flow of the game? The physicality is different. I remember my first couple of hits on a rugby field. I felt like you imagine you would. I was like, this sucks. I want pads on. Like, some <laughs> dude scraped my leg with his cleats. Some elbow randomly hit me in the chin. It's brutal. But as you get used to it, you realize, like, no. Like, I made a conscious decision to play rugby in college. I could have walked on. I know I could have played, like, D1 slot receiver. I could have long jumped in college. But I was like, I, rugby is something I can do forever. And I was I was pretty understanding of not being a pro athlete. But, I, you know, I played some men's club in our town, and they were like the studs of our town. These guys, were in the, they were in their late 20s and early 30s and were monsters and still a good team. And I was like, shit, I don't want to stop playing sports when I'm 21. Like, rugby is that way. Like, I can – shit, I played my last competitive season last year at 39. Yeah. Like I wasn't going to play any other sport. Like I played an old guy flag football league, which is for me just fun. Cause there's no risk of getting hurt. And yeah. it's like the opposite of rugby. Everyone's older and slower than me. Yeah. When I play rugby, everyone's younger and faster. So, but like, you know, I tell everyone that I've seen guys in their forties come out to start rugby, whether they're having a midlife crisis or they always wanted to do it. And they, they just didn't think they could. And they just finally suck it up. But it is a sport you can fall in love with quick for sure. Even if you're playing a casual D3 team, it's social, you have a good time. You're not going up against, you know, D1 or pro level players. Like that's the beauty of club rugby is you can yeah. kind of put yourself where you want to be. You don't you yeah. don't have to throw yourself into the fire.
0: Got it. Well, you know, a, a little scrape on the leg or a elbow to the chin sometimes that stuff it looks kind of cool, you know, on the it's weekends. A, damn right. People ask you what happened. You don't have to t- say you tripped and fell down your stairs. You can say, hey, you know, I, I'm you doing know. something cool. Yeah, I do something pretty cool. You should come out sometime. And They'll say, no, no, I don't want to do that.
1: Yeah, that's a little gnarly.
0: Yeah, that's fun, man. Well, I'll tell you what, we covered a lot. That was a lot of fun. Sure your did. background's different. Thanks for coming on this thing, man. Uh, for everyone listening, I'll post links to NACOA Performance, Nakoa Fitness. You can see all about that. Uh, I'll, get you, I'll get your information on there. Um, Anywhere else uh, people should be uh, aware of going? Uh,
1: No, that's it. I mean, we have our social going. Thanks to you guys, we're getting more into the online space from a business perspective. We've been using Team Builder, as you know, for years with our in-house clients, athletes, and our teams. But um, COVID and our quarantine, as you know, I was bugging you constantly. We realized, all right, we've been updating our online system from the back end for us but it's time to start getting some of our programs out there. So we're really stoked on how that's going so far.
0: Yeah, good. Well, I, um, for folks that, again, if you're listening, I think i probably make an announcement at the beginning of this podcast that we are putting out a new platform for online training and more specifically uh, pricing your programs and automating the payment process for all that, which NACOA is obviously on right now. So um, Ryan, thanks so much for coming on here, man. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me here. Good times, man.
0: All right, buddy. You too. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Team Builder podcast. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you would like us to discuss on our format, go ahead and reach out to me. My email is hewitt at teambuilder.com. Thanks again for listening.